Алекса, стоп. A podcast about how technology is changing our lives. With Robert Belgrave and Jim Balls. Oh my goodness me, this is Alexa Stop, episode number 16. The man opposite me is Mr. Robert Belgrave, and who am I? Mr. Bose, Jimathan Bose. How are you today? I'm good, I'm feeling slim. You're looking slim. Listeners, Jim has been torturing himself for three months to raise money for charity involving shedding weight and coming up with the best abs possible. Put those abs away. Tonight is the big reveal with uh, some sort of ludicrous event happening. You've raised a couple of grand, I think, for a good yeah, cause. over two grand now, yeah, uh, yep. for Cancer Research UK. Uh, and Leon from We Are Adam is my competitor, my arch rival in this situation. And I think, you know, whilst there is an element of may the best man win, uh, there's also uh, some props, I think, for, from each of us to each of us for a lot of hard work that's gone in over the last sort of 10-12 weeks for, for suffering basically for, suffering. for putting yourself through it wonderful so without any further ado i think it's time for the news it's the news it's the news yes it is the news yes yes it's the news indeed now of course on this week's episode we've got a very special guest coming up yes we do it's mr stephen emmett professor stephen emmett and uh, he w- spent 14 years as the head of computational science at microsoft research in cambridge and i saw him speaking about artificial intelligence about ooh, two months ago yeah. at an event organized by lydia from feed forward who's a previous guest And there he was talking about this investment fund he's going to create using all of the science he did whilst doing that job. All the science indeed. And that is a wonderful segue to our first news story of the month, which is from the wonderful people at Microsoft. It's as if I knew that was coming up, Rob. It it is, isn't it? So uh, yeah, as always, Stephen will be joining us in the studio later for our interview. But we'll be starting off by talking, as we always do, about some interesting tech news and how it's changing our lives from the last few months. So... Microsoft are announcing, or rather have announced, a competitor to a service that Amazon have been piloting, I guess, in I think in Boston. Amazon Go. Amazon Go, yeah. So the idea broadly is that in a retail environment, the checkout process is a real point of friction and having to, you know, rescan all of the stuff you've already picked up once and, and pay for it. So Amazon have released this service where you walk into the shop, you pre-register, obviously, and once you've got your kind of ID, you can walk into the shop and just put stuff in, in your bag and walk out and you get charged for what you take. And a lot of people see this as the future of retail, but it's kind of been an area that hasn't been a huge amount of competition. Uh, and so Microsoft have kind of broken ground on this. And it's funny how Microsoft and Amazon are really head to head on a lot of stuff now in the world of you know the future of technology. And yeah, they've released their cashierless automated store tech and there's been a big write-up of it in Reuters and various other sources, and it looks like that might be coming soon to uh, the retail environments that we all know and love. I think what's interesting about this is there's some really good examples of this in a bunch of sort of Asian countries. I know there's a lot of unattended shops in um, South Korea. Yeah. So some places that are a little bit ahead of the UK in this area. I think there's also some niche technology providers like AI Poly, who won an award at CES that we've talked about previously, that have got really good visual recognition technology for this unattended commerce stuff. So I think what we're going to see here is a real convergence where you know, voice, visual search, all those kinds of technologies and the people doing niche subcomponents of it. I think we're going to see some new acquisitions where some of these little niche technology creators are going to get bought by the Amazons and Microsofts of the world and hoovered up into the machine. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it we're sort of seeing all of these announcements around the periphery of the tech and then it'll all come together and the, the sum of the parts will be a, a really amazing new retail experience. But it's probably still, what, three to five years, I guess, from that being something that's really in the wild? I think so. And what I'm also not entirely convinced about 
is whether we as consumers care that much about checking out. Like, you talked yeah. about it as a point of friction, and I get you, yeah, it is a point of friction. But it's not a big problem, really. We're massively conditioned to that friction. Yeah. So, so I think the broader community... So will we go and have a go in one of these stores? Yeah, damn right we will. But will we, like, kick off when we have to use a till? Yeah, I wonder. It's funny, isn't it, how quickly things become normal and then the old way seems archaic. But, you know, Airbnb famously talked about how they had to re-engineer friction back into their process. Uh, in the early days, they spent all their effort removing friction and trying to automate the whole thing so that guests had no interaction with landlords at all and it was all completely automated. And they found a real drop-off, actually, in satisfaction from both landlords and their customers. So it's interesting how, in these customer experiences, actually friction isn't always a bad thing and, and there's a kind of need it's almost a human need to have a little bit of that so a bit of human interaction yeah. And, yeah, yeah yeah definitely um so i guess one of the things that we, we is going to relate to this is how we buy our groceries and groceries make food products that we make in our kitchen and someone has been having a good stab at making life in a burger restaurant easier Yes, they have indeed. And that's a lovely food segue with a stab pun rolled in. I hope that wasn't lost on anyone. It certainly wasn't lost on me. Obviously, it's in San Francisco. I mean, where else would it be? There's a new business that has come up with a burger making robot, essentially. Uh, and there's a wonderful story on TechCrunch with a video if you want to have go and have a look at it. And it makes sense, right? The, the owner of this startup or this restaurant, I guess you would say, has worked out that the part of a burger restaurant that's really quite soul-destroying is working on the grill because it's a production line job, really. Every burger you make is the same, near enough, and actually it's it's a sort of process-orientated workflow that lends itself really well to a robot and a bit of machine learning. And so he's created this robot that works the grill in his restaurant and all the other jobs are carried out by humans. And you know that he talks in when he's interviewed about that exact point, which we've talked about before on the podcast, about how maybe the best is yet to come, and actually maybe the the mundane and the and the you know the medial and repetitive work will be done by the machine, leaving the humans to do the bit we do so well, which in this case is the customer service, the interaction, you know, creating some human friction. Exactly. So I look forward to having a burger in that restaurant next time I'm in California, if it's still open. I mean, it's no, I won't be surprised if it's not, but it's quite a fun idea. It takes me sort of back to actually the McDonald's story. I don't know if you've seen the movie that tells the story of McDonald's as a restaurant. And yeah. a lot of that really is about automation. Exactly. I felt exactly the same way when I saw it. You know, the, the, what made McDonald's the global success it is was their ability to automate and, and make, you know, repetitive processes more efficient around how a burger restaurant runs. Now, they still used humans in most of those processes, but, but they were ultimately you know trying to fill six lots of fries simultaneously and yeah. move five burgers across the grill yeah, and all and those they, sorts of things and they use technology to do it albeit totally. not robotics right and still do today and a lot of that stuff is proprietary and, and heavily patented so um yeah i think it's the future right of, of certainly of fast food and of that type of cuisine uh yeah so from automation and machine learning uh, flipping burgers to going flipping crazy on the creative front you've got a good story for us Yes, indeed. So this is a, a bit of a callback to our last episode, which was our special with Lawrence and the guys from Innovation Social around computational creativity. So yeah, a, a piece went viral on Twitter. A, a chap claimed, and I say claimed because no one can prove it, but claimed that he'd fed a, a thousand hours of Olive Garden commercials, which is a sort of generic American-Italian chain for those Vibe. of you that yeah. don't, don't know it. Um, one on every corner. One on every corner. Known for its unlimited breadsticks, I understand. So this guy claimed that he fed a thousand hours of Olive Garden commercials into a machine learning model, forced a bot to watch a thousand hours, as he so aptly put it, and uh, got asked it to come up with a commercial of its own. And uh, well, it did quite a good job, I think. Are we going to act this out, Rob? We can act out some of it, yeah. 
what role would you like? Would you like me to be the waitress or would you like to be the waitress? I'll set the scene. Uh, a group of friends laughs at a dinner table. A waitress comes to deliver what could be considered food. Pasta nachos for you, says the waitress. We see the pasta nachos. They're warm and defeated. Friend one exclaims, the menu is here. Lasagna wings with extra Italy, says the waitress. We see the lasagna wings. There's more Italy than... (laughs) (laughs) We see the lasagna wings. There's more Italy than necessary. I'm struggling to say because it's so funny. (laughs) We'll leave this in. Carry on. We see the lasagna wings. There is more Italy than necessary. I got there. Friend two exclaims, I shall eat Italian citizens. The waitress comes back. Unlimited stick. We see the unlimited stick. It is infinite. It is all. Uh, And we won't spoil the rest of the fantastic uh, transcript. So do go and have a read of that. It was posted by a very talented writer called Keaton Patty. And given his background as a comic writer, we're slightly suspicious that it was programmatically generated, but hilarious nonetheless. And uh, also a great demonstration of, of doing social interaction well as a brand because Keaton tweeted at Olive Garden, let me know if you want to use this. And they came back and said, not bad for a first draft, but we do have some feedback. Classic, you see. They've always got feedback, those clients. Um, um, and finally, one more story. Yeah. Um, you'll remember, Rob, that in May, uh, Google wowed us all uh, and the video went super viral for their new Google duplex phoning up um, a takeaway vibe and phoning a hairdresser new Google Assistant type feature. Yeah, so for people that didn't see the story, the Google Assistant on your phone, which is a bit like Siri for Apple users uh, or the namesake of this wonderful show, Google are a pioneering a feature where it, it is so good at synthesizing voice that it can ring up something for you and make a reservation with, you know, interacting with the human unbeknown to the human at the other end. So it's quite a big breakthrough and, and frankly is a wonderful opportunity for some good, honest dystopia. <laughs> um, Definitely. Uh, and yeah, as Jim says, they're, they're debuting it in the world, which is a, bi- a big day. Out there making public phone calls now. Uh, a couple of interesting things that, that have developed in it since the launch in May at Google's yeah. big event. Uh, they've made it introduce the fact that uh, it is Google's assistant and it is recording the call. Uh, uh, some legal issues there, one would assume. To fit in with uh, the California rules around recording phone calls and things like that because they're trialling it in public in California. Mm. So if you get a call <laughs> where the introduction is, hi, I'm the Google Assistant, well, you'll be left in no doubt what's going on. But uh, I, I'm really genuinely excited to have a play with that technology because I think it could be a game changer. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, could change lots of jobs in our lives. And I think, you know, Google are laying the groundwork with their current advertising campaign. Yeah. You know, they're sort of doing this whole let Google do it, make Google do it for you kind of vibe. Yeah. And really, this is some of the underpinning technology that makes all of that work. For sure. For sure. Um, So uh, what's your CTO been up to? Have you got a story from your from your CTO? Uh, I do, although I feel like more of an effort needs to be made on the on the jingle intro, Jim. I was trying to remember what the jingle intro is for the CTO story. It's, it's, um, uh, let's, let, let's, I'll just make something up. It's CTO story time, CTO story time, CTO story time. Strong, strong work. Uh, yeah, we do, as always, have a story from my wonderful eccentric CTO. Uh, this month, it's all about batteries. Right. Yeah, I love batteries. They power all sorts of things. Yes. Um, are you talking about like the big batteries that power cars and stuff like that? Or are you talking about treble A batteries that power remote controls? Well, I'll tell you. So my CTO has recently purchased an electric car 
for the first what, time. What brand of electric car? Uh, he's, he's gone for a Nissan or Nissan, as some people like mm. to call it. I'm, I'm Northern. I'd go Nissan. Nissan. Yeah, Pretty flat. me too. So uh, he's purchased a Nissan Leaf, the new generation Leaf. Uh, very, very popular. They've sold huge numbers of them. Uh, I think in the first week they sold more than they sold the entire of the last range or some crazy stat like that, largely because it doesn't look terrible anymore. Uh, the first one looked really awful and they've managed to style it quite nicely. I think cars That's for good. most people are still an emotional purchase or certainly it's a big element of it. But the technology has also developed and I think that EVs, electric vehicles are getting to the point maybe where they're pushing out into the mainstream a little bit more. But anyway, one of the things that people do when they have electric cars, and this is one of the features that Nissan actually offers, is you can use it as a battery to power your house, right? Which is really amazing. So you can you can have a charger installed, and then that charger doesn't only charge the car, but you can actually draw energy from the battery packs in the car to power your house as well. Let's say you're in an area where you might have a brownout or you've got solar installation in your house or wind and you can generate electricity during certain periods of time, but then you need to kind of harvest it back from the batteries. And that got him to thinking about, well, you know, maybe it's time actually to switch to one of these incredibly efficient tariffs where you generate and consume electricity overnight at a much lower rate and then draw it down from your own storage during the day. Super 7 or something they're called. I can never remember what they're I called. I do have that in my house. Do you? But, but more because I live in a 90s property. And so... With storage heaters. It did previously have storage heaters. I've got rid of them. But right. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's kind of what it's aimed at. But um, he he's basically worked out that he could slap some solar cells on the various roofs he has in his country house. and The various roofs. I've got more than one roof. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like he's a total baller. He just lives somewhere that's really cheap, so he's got a massive house. But he is thinking that he could feed the power from those solar cells, along with the cheap power from the grid overnight, into one of his many sheds. We've covered his sheds before, plural. Yep. And could build a giant battery from old reclaimed laptop cells obviously, um, to create his own sort of equivalent to the Tesla Powerwall, which is a kind of consumer spec product to do this. Yeah. Uh, so it's just so CTO, isn't it? Knock up uh, a massive sort of mad scientist grade battery in a shed built out of old laptops. I hope all of the laptop batteries remain in their original laptops <laughs> and they all it. just get connected together into some like massive art installation yeah. and you open the shed and it's literally just full just of laptops. Just loads of, loads of laptops. Yeah, that would be great. So uh, yeah, that is this month's story from RCTO. It's almost like he should be become an artist, like a tech artist uh, and uh, dedicate his time and his gift to that. I think we're channeling that for him through our creative vehicle that is Alexa Stop. True story. Amazing, as always, from the CTO. Uh, maybe it's time we talk about something from the hype curve. Yeah, I think so. And as avid listeners will know, we always like to take something from the Gartner hype cycle, whether it's something quite early on and it's kind of at the peak of hype or something a bit further along, which perhaps is kind of making it into the mainstream, out of into the plateau of productivity. And this month, we'd like to talk about electric cars because as we, you know, we've covered in with uh, our CTO story there, it's something that is really starting to break through. And there's been a really big announcement since we last recorded from Jaguar Land Rover, which is the announcement of the iPACE, which is being touted by all the motor journalists as a real breakthrough and success and, and the first really credible alternative to a Tesla in this space. Uh, and, and frankly, it's seen as a marker of the fact that the rest of the car industry is has caught up now and is and they're all about to start releasing their, their electric platforms. Very yeah. good cars. Yeah. Like really, really good electric platform cars. And so the iPace uh, retails for about seventy thousand pounds in the UK, which is by no means cheap, but is you know a good 
I think it's about 50% the cost of the Model X Tesla, which is the kind of equivalent SUV size vehicle, four and a half seconds to 60, full electric platform, all of the luxurious Jaguar fixtures and fittings that we're familiar with. It looks pretty cool. It's quite futuristic. Uh, and they've apparently had huge interest and, and massive numbers of orders already, which you know is indicative of, of the quality of what looks to be a fantastic vehicle. I think you're right here, like because I was speaking to someone at Bentley last week uh, and I, I know that they've got stuff sort of ready to roll. Uh, they've bought in some of the platform technology, yeah, um, which is unusual. It'll be the first time Bentley have not crafted all of the stuff themselves. Interesting. In their history. Just like motors and batteries and stuff, you mean? or I, 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 But no, also things around like braking and, and uh, stuff like that, because I think because the, those, the people that are developing the electric vehicles have developed them specifically for the nature of those vehicles. Yeah. So by the uh, well, time, it's, it's Bosch, apparently, as it always is in motoring, right? Like all of the self-drive kit is actually being produced by two or three tradi- you know, typically German manufacturers and licensed and, and subbed out by everybody else. So it's probably... probably and I think that then some good car manufacturers have taken some of that types of technology and put it together in smart ways. Yeah. And I think Bentley have then taken pretty much the whole chassis of a vehicle, really, right. and then just put a Bentley styling on it. Um, and so there's not much of their own technology involved in the new vehicles, I'm led to believe. But obviously, they're still going to make beautifully finished highly desirable vehicles and yeah. i'm sure they'll continue to be a successful brand but i think if if those sorts of heritage brands are, are, are pretty much ready to go if you've got the sort of jaguars of the world ready to go then you know we know that people like volvo have been doing really well for a while in this space then you know the car market is caught up yeah it's coming isn't it and i'm excited i, I really enjoy driving electric vehicles they're an absolute riot to drive and it's better for the planet right so that's it can only be a positive thing and so Let's round off, shall we? Before we get our guest in to talk about his amazing life and, and career, let's talk about a piece of technology we'd like to bring back. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Did you love drawing as a child? No. <laughs> I didn't. I did, no, no, that's not true. I did, but I'm, I was never a very talented artist. I could never create what I could visualise. And I'm a bit of a perfectionist too. So I, you know, somewhere on the spectrum as we've covered before. So I, I found it very frustrating being able to visualize the, what in my head was an amazing piece of art and not being able to create it. So actually, this is one of the reasons I got into technology is I loved doing art with Photoshop and with computers. And maybe the that's part of why this is the thing I'd like to bring back is the Etch-a-Sketch. I suppose it's, yeah, a piece of technology that was renewable. Yep. You yep. got to shake it and uh, get rid of... Uh, get rid of the drawing and yeah. get to use it again uh, back in its day uh, and was yeah spoke to that sort of technical way of creating drawings yeah and so I'm, i hope everybody listening to this has played with an extra sketch in their lives if not i feel very very sorry for you in fact i'd be i'd be almost tempted to offer anybody who's never played with an extra sketch that i will buy and send you one if you have not the extra sketch was a, a red plastic box with two little knobs on it that you could use to draw things in what sort of looked a bit like pencil on the screen. And then when you shook the device, the drawing sort of faded away and you could start again with a blank canvas. And it was just something incredibly satisfying about it, uh, which I, I I really enjoyed. And my link to the Etch-A-Sketch is that uh, I, a long time ago, I used to own a vintage and retro shop and we sold uh, miniature Etch-A-Sketch key rings. Nice. In our retro vibes way that really worked. Were they a good seller? They were very, very popular, yeah. yeah I bet. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd rock one of those now. And of course, there is a link with the Etch-A-Sketch to a piece of technology that's new in your life. Yeah, so I, about every four or five years, like a lot of people, I'm always tempted to upgrade my television to something new and shiny. Uh, And I've just gone through that cycle since we last recorded. And I've purchased a product by Samsung called a Frame, which is probably one of the 
most interesting pieces of consumer electronics I've seen in a long time because it's just a really clever idea. And it looks fantastic. Yeah. So this this product is is worth a look if you're in the market for a TV or just if you're interested in, in cool technology. What they've done is they've used the latest OLED 4K HDR capable screens, which is basically like a really, really good quality screen to create something that is indistinguishable from a picture frame. And then they've done a partnership deal with a load of art galleries to allow you to choose art from real galleries and real artists to display on this TV when it's in its off state. And the nice thing about LED screens is that they can kind of hold a picture, the last picture that was on them once they've been powered down. So your television is literally off but can display a perfectly high-definition, beautiful, full-color image on it. And and what Samsung have done very cleverly is they've made the casework of the TV look like a picture frame. So you can put this thing on your wall, and when it's off, you know, i.e. you're not watching television on it, you can have it display a piece of art or a photo. And I, I promise you, you would not be able to tell it was not simply a painting unless you went right, right up to it and really looked closely uh, which is just an incredible step forward because I think the dead screen problem, right, in our living rooms, a lot of us have 40-inch plus televisions. It's a horrible big black screen. When it's off, it kind of dominates the space, something that's often I've often felt there should be a solution to, and I think Samsung might have finally found it. So, uh, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm excited. And, you know, like, like actually my home isn't, like, overly teched up. You yeah. know, I, I've got... Uh, I've got a smart assistant. I've got a projector and things like that. But and, and I do have wireless control of my heating. But but beyond those, it's not super super high tech. I'm excited about this, and I can't wait to see it in your house because I may decide to buy one. Well, uh, I'm excited about it too. It arrives on Friday, but I've I've seen one in the flesh already, and I was very impressed. So uh, yeah, I feel like we've we, we're owed some sponsorship money from Jaguar and from Samsung this month, but we're uh, willing to take goods. <laughs> but you know, we'll take we'll take services or product in kind. It's fine. Uh, Absolutely. Um, Should we invite a guest into the studio? I think we should. So after this short interlude, we'll be resetting the studio and inviting Mr. Stephen Emmett to join us to talk us through the fascinating stuff he's been up to, some of the amazing work he's done before, uh, and some of his views on what's going to be really, really important for all of us in the future. And why never to read the book reviews you get. So we're back on Alexa Stop with our guest, Mr. Stephen Emmett. How the devil are you? I'm very well, thank you. Tell us a little bit about who you are. I am a neuroscientist by background. Uh, Up until 2017, I was head of computational science at Microsoft for 14 years. And now I'm... CEO and chief scientist of a new investment firm, uh, and I would say a firm with a, a pioneering new approach to impact investing and innovation. We're just getting going, and that's what I'm doing. So perhaps where we should start is just what is impact investing, um, because people may not uh, have heard of it, and, and if we, we're going to talk about perhaps a new form of impact investing, perhaps we need to come up to the base concept. Well, impact investing is a fairly broad and vague term, I I think. And in the broadest terms, it, you know, it means anything from socially re- socially responsible investing. You know, that means you know, sort of having uh, some some idea that you d- either don't want to invest in a particular type of sector, tobacco or arms or 
to, I suppose the term is ESG, so environmental, social, and corporate responsibility investing, to direct impact investing. So that might be, uh, you know, investing in something that you think is going to have a dif- make make a difference to the world. So investing in Tesla or investing in some silicon photovoltaic firm or something. I mean, the problem is is that impact investing, but you know, by most is recognized as not having an impact. So that's the problem. And so the question then becomes, if you want to actually address some of the most pressing global problems that we face through impact investing, how do you go about that? Well, you need to sort of really kind of radically rethink impact investing and actually radically rethink how to address global problems. Now, it's interesting that at the intersection of that is the recognition that we need radically new approaches to addressing global problems and radically new kinds of science and technology to do that. And it turns out that those, those, the, the kinds of radically new kinds of science that might be beneficial to accelerating our ability to address some of these big global challenges might equally have radically beneficial outcomes in terms of investment outcomes for generating a step change in returns for investors so you know of course we've got this you know at the minute just disrupting energy or something might have a huge positive impact on the planet but also create huge returns i guess is what you're saying well actually well what i mean by that no sorry i've I've sort of well well, yes well let me me put it a different way so you know one of one of the things that is is critical is 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 to be able to understand for example ecosystem degradation climate change you know, ocean acidification, you know, there's a whole range of these things. So what you're talking about there is being is the science of of predictive understanding of highly complex, dynamic, nonlinear systems in terms of climate, in terms of ecosystem, right. global ecosystems. Huge numbers of data points, m- many numbers of moving parts. I mean, simplify it a little bit for those of us that aren't familiar. I, I guess it's Biology is ultimately one of the most complex things, right? Right. So, whether you know whether it's understanding the brain or it's yeah. understanding the, how the immune system works, or understanding how the climate works, or understanding how ecosystem, global ecosystems sure. work, you're talking about these highly nonlinear, highly dynamic, highly reactive systems, which are characterized by you know highly interactive and reactive components. Right. And actually, they look a lot like markets. Um, which are also highly reactive and highly nonlinear and highly adaptive, as in financial markets, right? Markets. I'm talking about yeah. financial yeah, yeah. markets, um, and uh, you know the ability to actually understand one might have an enormous impact on the ability to understand the other. So you know I've spent 15 years in developing highly novel kinds of science to predict these very complex. Uh, biological systems from a level of biochemistry, immune system, stem cells, all the way to to the brain, immune system, climate and ecosystems. And um, I'm keen to continue to develop that kind of science in order to develop both better understanding of the problems that we face and, and in order to then develop better and more radical solutions that are urgently needed. Turns out exactly the same approach to doing that science has the ability to um, divert, to generate a, a, a sort of a, a real discontinuous shift 
in our ability to predict and understand markets, financial markets. And if you can marry them both, then you can actually really kind of disrupt the ability to generate returns for investors. Yeah. And at the same time, do what impact investing has failed to do, which is generate a real impact by using some of the returns from that, that from that kind of investment to power and underpin the kind of science that's needed to really kind of develop radically new approaches to the problems that we face. So a good example is, yeah. we, we were talking earlier, which is if you think about you know, climate change and, and thinking about carbon-free energy, you know, you look at these really, I think, laudable endeavors like, you know, breakthrough technology, sort of breakthrough energy and breakthrough technology organization that Bill Gates and uh, set up, you know, with the great and the good to develop breakthrough energy technologies to solve the climate problem. Yeah. When you look, and that's completely laudable, you know, that really is impact investing. But when you look at it, it nonetheless, is still low cost nuclear energy and next generation silicon photovoltaics like nowhere in there is something as radical and as potentially revolutionary as something like artificial photosynthesis yeah and um you know plants have had as we were chatting earlier you know plants have had three billion years of their own r&d to figure out how to uh, harvest sunlight in a very efficient way just that we don't know how they do that but marrying this approach, this novel approach to science to try and develop a predictive understanding of, for example, you know, complex biological systems like plants, which are pretty complex biological systems, yeah. and the photosynthetic machinery. And then you know, using that on the one hand to um, develop, develop novel investment methods, scientific, you know, beyond quant investing, so scientific investing, but also de- using the, those scientific methods to develop equally these real impact investing, such as you know these very novel scientific approaches to say energy harvesting, energy generation, such as artificial photosynthesis, um, could be totally revolutionary in in both senses, in terms of investment and in terms of in terms of addressing global problems. Now that for me is, is what I really call impact investing rather than just buying shares in Tesla or, you know... <laughs> Which I know you don't feel... Sun Energy or feel whatever it, it is. Yeah, it's a particularly... You've got to go easy around here, you know. Rob's known for being a bit of a fan of Mr. Musk. Oh, I like Mr. Musk. But oh, do you? I, I, I do. I'm rather I, surprised about that. I, I, the reason I like Mr. <laughs> Musk uh, is because I think he, as I've said before on this podcast, it's not so much about the work he's doing, it's about the force for good he is in terms of inspiring a generation right like i think there's a lot of people who look to the work he's doing as an encouragement to actually to do exactly what you're saying which is to tackle problems radically and to do things differently and to push through the barriers that perhaps are perceived to be there i mean what he's done in the electric vehicle market nobody thought was possible everyone told him he was crazy it seems to me that he's opened the doors to electric vehicles being mass produced. And if we can combine that with something like clean energy production, then that's going to make a meaningful difference to our world. So I, I don't know that SpaceX as well has kind of huge innovations in reusable rockets. You're looking at me like you totally disagree. I'm looking forward to hearing why. Uh, but 
anyway, that's my view on Elon, right? I, I think I see him as a figure that has created positive change through inspiring people as much as he has through the actual technology he's participated in developing himself. Well, I, I mean, I think, yeah, I'm, I, you know, I'm not sure I agree with much of what you've said there, but <laughs> good. Uh, good. That's always good. <laughs> this is going to be fun. Let's have it. Come on. The, I mean, I sort of admire the business model it, it, from a commercial perspective of of Tesla, you know, and Elon Musk. Which, I'll set aside SpaceX, which I'm happy to talk okay. about in a minute. Okay. You know, Tesla's business model is, you know, uh, build a very expensive, low-volume sports car, electric sports car, use that money to then build a mid-priced, slightly greater-volume sports car, yep. and then use that money to build a low co- lower-cost, high-volume sport-ish car. Absolutely. It's difficult not to admire that sort of business model. Particularly as he put it on paper and shared it with everybody transparently, it's not right. like well. Let's secret. forget. Let's just forget for a minute the debt that they're in, right? Okay. <laughs> and, yeah. and and whether and the, the market, just laid off ten percent oh, of their workforce. Right. This and week. whether yeah. the market will ultimately believe that Tesla is economically viable. Yeah. And they, you know, if everyone called in their debts, Tesla wouldn't exist. In true. You know. It's true. Having said that, the idea that that's going to change the world in terms of planet saving ignores the fact that you've still got to dig half of the stuff out of the ground, right? So it involves a lot of resource extraction. Tesla batteries are not the most green thing on Earth. And if you see what's in a Tesla battery or a Prius battery, but a Tesla battery in particular, there's some fairly exotic minerals and metals in there that come from some fairly unpleasant countries. And the idea that that's sustainable in terms of greenness is questionable. And then, you know, they've got to be powered, right? So the energy has still got to come from somewhere. So it might not be emitting carbon dioxide out of some car, but the idea that you could actually scale that up and generate enough electricity that was clean to power a world full of electric cars, I yeah. think, is, is uh, fanciful at the moment. But isn't the argument that producing electricity at scale or burning any fuel to create electricity at scale, however you do it, is considerably more efficient and therefore more ecologically favourable than doing it in a combustion engine on a per-car basis. I mean, that's my understanding, and I might be wrong. You know, you're certainly clearly more knowledgeable than I am, so I defer to your wisdom. But the way I've had it explained to me, which made sense, was that simple truth about electric vehicles is the thing that means it, it stacks up when you, when you net it all off, is that producing the, the fuel in a centralized way allows you to do it in a much more efficient manner to do better filtration to you know oh, no, to no, process I, more I wouldn't of disagree with that and all that stuff right oh i absolutely wouldn't disagree with that i'm simply saying that it's not it's not this panacea it's not the be all and end all okay right. that's that is I can it, agree with. Is yeah. it a stage step to getting to the thing that is better, I suppose, which is perhaps what, I guess that's maybe the dream we've been sold? Yeah, no, I, I, th- I think panacea is the right word, right? I totally agree with you there. It, it, they're not there yet, right? It's definitely a, a, a journey, but I guess I feel like maybe, maybe he's disrupted what I perceive to be a very capitalism-led monopoly around the production of traditional motor vehicles and the fuel industry and it just never seemed to me like there was really any incentive for shell for example to change or for ford to change right and i think that again maybe naively i assumed that actually it took someone like elon somebody else could have done it but it took someone to come along and you know 
quite forcefully disrupt this monopoly, essentially. It's not monopoly, is it? There's, you know, five or six players in each of those markets. But you know what I mean? That that sort of cartel, let's say, that was who, who, whose interests it served to continue to produce the same old technology in just as an inefficient a way as possible. And actually, the things that we were seeing, you mentioned the Prius, we could both have a good rant about that, I'm sure, were just laughable, actually, in a, in a sort of half step in the right direction, but weren't actually making any meaningful change. And in some cases, actually, were worse for the planet, right, as, as we talked about. So, I don't know. This is a fun debate. Um, I'm glad we seem to have found middle ground. What about SpaceX? You said, you, you said you'd come back to that. Well, you know, I mean, the idea of... Space, SpaceX as a vehicle for launching satellites, fine. Yeah. SpaceX, if I've understood Musk's ambition, ambitions correctly, is this view to getting to Mars at some point. To try sort of seems to have become that, doesn't it? Colonise Mars or yeah. something. Well, Multi-planetary species. I right. Well, really unfortunately, that doesn't solve the problem of, like, what do we do about the planet that we're on, rather than sort of saying, well, we've fucked up this planet, let's just... Let's try again. Another, let's, let's, yeah. you know. And, you know, I'd be more keen on... Solutions from people like Elon Musk that uh, address the problems we've got on this planet, rather than saying, "Well, we've we've really messed this one up. Let's what, let's have a go on another planet." What about? Yeah, I mean, maybe I've misunderstood him. I yeah. don't know. No, I think that that's definitely part of it. I mean, so again, for me, it's like when you break through the the surface ambition of things like the Mars mission and all that, you get to like, okay, well, what about if rockets became cheap enough? that we could feasibly develop within the commercial boundaries of private enterprise off-planet heavy industries, for example. You mean extraction? Well, I, I, I wasn't going as far as mining asteroids, but we can go there. Um, but there's, there's, this, there's a number of people talking about the idea that if you, could, if you could move a lot of heavy industry off-planet, you solve a lot of pollution issues. There are huge efficiencies to be had by doing things in a zero-gravity environment. You're not bound by the architectural constrictions of building things, so you could build these mega structures in space, potentially, that could be very interesting from a sort of... Good chance. Uh, I don't know, huge factories, huge production lines. Doing what? I don't know, filtering things, extracting things, building things, making products. I, I don't know. I suppose it's like a pretty fundamentally different view of the world, isn't it? So there's, do we do we use technology to uh, reverse the terrible mess we've made of the planet we've got? Or do we use technology to find other places to make a terrible mess of? Or maybe both, right? And I, I don't know, but I, look, it's a really interesting debate, and I, I didn't plan to get well, well, bogged down but, in space. No, things, but no, of course, go on, go on. but it's interesting because these, you know, these are all variations on the idea that we can technologize our way out of the problems that we face, which you fundamentally disagree with. Well, we certainly need to try and find solutions to the problems that we face, and some of those uh, may indeed be scientific or technological. And you know, artificial photosynthesis is an energy, yeah, a radically new energy technology which is scientifically based. Sure. I mean, how would you define the distinction between the two? Because it's something I think I struggle with personally. I sort of see science and technology almost as the same discipline in this era. Is that is probably completely incorrect? Like, how would you, how would you no, make I, a well, distinction? An, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, technology and technological solutions are often based upon something that you can build and therefore look for a solution. Look, 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 you know, yeah. you, you, look, you look for a problem to solve then. You think the science precedes the technology? And, but then the science bit? is more about understanding... Yeah things in the world so the science might you know half of this you know a lot, a lot of, to do with the sciences understanding particularly in what we're talking about is understanding the scale and the nature of the problems that we face because it's only it's only by doing that first that you then can better understand what the nature of the solution has to be right and actually you know climate models are reasonably good in terms of the physics of climate models they're mm -hmm. not very good in terms of the biotic aspects 
of what determines and regulates climate, which is increasingly acknowledged as as increasingly important. You know, what's, what's interesting is, is that I think it was like, I don't know, 10 years ago, I was once in, in a debate at the Royal Society with Julia Slingo, who is the chief scientist at the Met Office. Okay. And, you know, Julia, I, I, I gave a talk and it, it was talking about how, you know, we have a reasonable to a first approximation understanding of how to model the physical aspects of the climate, atmospheric physics, ocean physics, ocean circulation, a, a, a range of things. But we have a very poor understanding of how the world's biotic components, forests, marine components of the biosphere, so, you know, coccolithophores, sort of the whole range of, of kind of everything that sort of determines cloud formation, world's forests, or the whole global carbon cycle, which is predominantly governed by um, biotic components of the of the planet, of the biosphere. And, you know, Julia was of the view that actually we didn't need to... That, that was irrelevant, really, really, to sort of understanding climate change. Of course, she then, 10 years later, published a paper herself. I think it was also in the Royal Society saying we need to understand the world's biotic mm-hmm. uh, uh, components to climate change. Uh, which was which, which was nice, but perhaps ten years late. You know, one of the things is you know you can develop technological solutions, but you don't know whether you're developing technological solutions to the right problem. And Tesla is a good example, or next generation silicon photovoltaics is a good example. Which is solar panels for the layman, right? Right. Yeah. So, so the question becomes, you know, first of all, what's the scale and the nature of the problems that we face, and that's a more scientific problem rather than technological. So, so whose responsibility is it to both ask and answer the right questions? Well, in terms of asking the right questions, it depends what what questions we're talking about. In terms of things to do with like global ecosystem structure and function and its degradation, their degradation, and climate change, then I, you know, the only people who can really try and address the scale and the nature of that problem are scientists, ecologists, climate scientists. There's a separate issue, which is asking a different question: is like uh, what you know? Why are we in this situation? And why why, do, why these problems exist? And what do we do about them? And that's way beyond what scientists can can possibly answer. And you know, that's a question about what kind of society do we want to live in? So we we were talking earlier about you know everyone you know the the solution to com- internal combustion engine vehicles is. Tesla or you know electric cars, but a better solution might be just not having cars at all, <laughs> right? Some different form of way of thinking about transportation, or more generally, more a different form about of the problem. consumption. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, how do we go from the academic framing of scientists looking at those sort of those those sort of bigger questions into tangible things that happen in the world, and how does that relate to what you're doing with your fund? Well, that's a very good question. So just to, just to clarify, scientists can help address the problem of what's happening to the climate. You wouldn't expect you know, someone walking out on the street there to be able to understand what's going on in the components that govern climate. It's a sunny day in London, listeners. We're looking out at Shoreditch High Street, and I, that chap there looks like he might have the answer, don't you think? No? Okay. No, no I, of, but, course, you know, of course. Or, yeah. e- or ecosystem structure and function. These are complex... System, you know, highly complex yeah. systems, and they're difficult to understand. So you would expect, which is what 
I've spent the last 15 years of my life doing is, is, is finding ways to better understand and predict those things. You know, whether it's climate or whether it's ecosystems or whether it's how the brain works or how the immune system works. Yeah. So at the, at the core of all of those is how can we develop pioneering new approaches to science that enable us to develop a predictive understanding of these complex systems? How that gets to investment... So, so you wouldn't expect, uh, you know, non-scientists to sort of really tackle yeah. that. But that's a separate question to the question we were talking about at the moment, which is, you know, how do we tackle these issues? And that's a much more broader societal problem more to do with consumption, yeah. to do with the way in which we, you know, choose want uh, the world to work. And then you think about, well, you know, what right have we got to deny, you know, a billion Chinese and a billion mm. Indians and a billion and a bit You quickly Africans. reach the philosophical questions as well, don't you? To, uh, right. Yeah. Uh, to, to live, you know, why shouldn't they have a fridge sure. and an air conditioning and, yeah. you know, a telly? And a well, whatever. that's their argument. You had your industrial revolution, now it's our turn. Right. I mean, setting aside for the moment that I don't believe that anyone should have human rights, I think it should all be human responsibilities... That's a different talk altogether. Very interesting. Yeah, okay. Um, and something that we do talk about, because the, the idea of citizenship and things like that. Right. So, so we, we, when we spoke at South by Southwest, that was part of our right. conversation. So just getting back to your question, Jim, about uh, what's this got to do with investing? So this gets back to what we were talking about right at the beginning of this chat, which is, you know, the centre of all of this lot is radically new ways to, of doing science whether that's understanding how the brain works, understanding how the immune system works, understanding how organs, organisms form, and organs, or whether understanding the climate, or understanding ecosystems, radically new ways of uh, approaching science to understand these highly complex systems, which, which have, for decades have been phenomenally difficult to predict. And, you know, most in the science community would say are decades away from having a predictive understanding. Most would say the same about markets, financial markets. They're, you know, they're highly unpredictable. Yeah. They're highly volatile, highly dynamic, highly reactive, and they're very difficult to predict and understand. Well, we're, we're actually applying the kind of science that I've been working on for the last 10 to 15 years to markets to be able to better predict markets, market behavior, yeah. asset prices, to then generate a step change in return for investors and generate an impact, and I mean a direct impact. So rather than using... You know, from the profits, you mean? Sorry? To, to, from the profits, though, is where yes, the impact comes well, from. Well, yeah, from, yeah, from, from a proportion of, the, yes. from, of you know, asset owners' funds yeah. to have a direct impact. So rather than some sort of impact by proxy, i.e. investing in Tesla or not investing in... Yeah a tobacco firm or an arms firm or a mining firm, actually doing direct innovation by using the science to, uh, on the one hand, generate a step change in return for investors uh, by being able to better predict market behavior and asset price behavior. And on the other hand, using the same fundamental approach, fundamentally new approach to doing science to generating these First of all, a better understanding of the problems that we face and therefore radically new approaches to trying to solve them, having had a better understanding of the nature of the scale of the problem. And when we talk about um, scientists, uh, you know, helping us understand these problems, I suppose uh, often perhaps scientists wouldn't be uh, the people to take to market products or services that might affect a behavioural change in wider society. So... 
do, does the, the sort of models that you create go directly back into a world where we better understand problems or is there some sort of link up that might have a sort of impact on wider society and, and looking at ways to drive behavioral change in society well i you know behavioral change in society is absolutely a necessity but that's not our job having said that you know i you know our, our job is to do fundamentally new science to actually do direct impact innovation impact investing and uh, and that's been you know that's what we're very good at um the the behavioral change you know i think we probably ultimately can play a role there by being able to derive a better understanding of ecosystem degradation and climate change of then being able to say well you know this is the scale this is a better understanding of the scale of the nature of problem and being able to influence or at least inform or engage in the debate a bit a, a bit more and maybe inspire people to innovate in, right. in those areas right um, so let's get this back to money uh, and the investment fund so talk to us about the 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 general returns where people put their monies and where people's pension funds are and how and why you think what you're doing will be different and what the difference in returns are likely to be well it, you know there's a firm that's just getting going so it's a bit too early to to start really pronouncing on what the returns are absolutely going to be but like a noticeable but you must have, but yeah, what you must will, have a hypothesis right, right? well yeah. well it's we talk well it's interesting talking about hypotheses you know quant firms are all data driven and yeah. algorithm driven and the one thing that's very fundamentally different about a scientifically driven investment firm is that it's hypothesis driven and uh the problem with it hypotheses is you know which hypotheses are correct sure. so one of the things that we we really pioneers of is automated methods for reasoning and so you can think about reasoning as hypothesis formation so one of the things that we've done is be able the ability to actually automatically generate millions of all possible plausible hypotheses for a particular question uh, and then being able to automatically generate all plausible and possible models to test the consequences of those hypotheses and then automatically be able to conduct the millions of experiments necessary to test the predictions of each one of those models and that's quite a big undertaking yeah and so we've been doing that you know in in science and we're now doing that in in investment so a hypothesis-driven approach to investment rather than a, just a purely algorithmic or data-driven approach to investment I think is a fundamentally different and fundamentally new idea in, in investing. In terms of, you were asking, why, why, did you mention, why did you ask about hypotheses in the first place? Oh, I just, um, I, I'm, I'm familiar with, with quant trading and, and stuff and so uh, some of our listeners might not be. So quant trading is like, basically using maths and modeling yes. to make informed well, also in some cases automated decisions yes. about trading right? right so in the olden days it was all people who used to stand around shouting at each other deciding to buy and sell things and then computers turned up and this podcast is all about how technology changes our lives well if you were a trader on wall street technology absolutely changed your life and a lot of these guys now are basically sort of assisting the computer to actually execute on the decisions it's already making right and, and that that's all based on hypothesis and, and modeling well, well, so it, uh, well i'm not sure about hypothesis but it's based upon it's, it, again i think the distinction between data and algorithmic driven approaches quants and scientifically driven 
which are both world away from discretionary right. approaches, which is what you're talking about. Okay. Not, I'm not entirely sure I would go as far as to say people shouting at each other across the floor. <laughs> but uh, yes, I know. It's like Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. <laughs> Surely. Well, that's, that, that was the old fashioned way. Once upon a time, anyway. And, and so, and then, you know, you get to this, this exciting p- possibility, right? Which is, and I think it's so, I'm just so fascinated by this because I've always had a great interest in economics and money and trading and, and also technology and, and the two colliding in this way is so interesting to me. So one question I've been dying to ask you since we sat down is, so is quantum computing the key thing that makes this possible? Because I know that a lot of people have said for a long time that quantum computing is the, the step that will be needed to truly be able to simulate a lot of these kind of organic scale problems, the problems of nature, the problems of biology. Is that something that's kind of on your radar? Are you looking at the work with quantum computing? Or No. No? Okay. Uh, uh, you know, uh, for the last quarter of a century that I've been doing science, quantum computing has always been 10 years away. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And I think it will remain 10 years away despite, in a quarter of a century from now. doubling the qubits this year and well, Q-sharp being released by Microsoft as a cloud service. And no, none of that. Right, as a cloud service. It's a simulation, right? It's not a quantum computer. they said computer. by next year it'll be backed by the 60-qubit machine they're building. And Well, I look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> this is from the ex-Microsoft research scientist, everybody. So uh, I, I'm suddenly less excited than I was 10 minutes ago about quantum. Okay, cool. And no, you know, I think the I think the people working at I think it's it's policy is still called Station Q right. in Microsoft. You know, I think they're they're you know some of the best people in working quantum computing. Okay, but, but and of course they've now, they've now t- tied up with a really amazing group. I think it's Delft University. Yeah, and uh, so you know that's not. This time whether, whether the, it's good people working on this is not the point. The point is, sure. is it going to be away. solved in <laughs> okay. next year? And I, I, you know, I, I would, I struggle with that. What you're saying honest. is, you want your uh, fund away in less than ten years' time. <laughs> anyway, it, it, the fund is not re, is not going to re, rely on quantum computing. Okay, we were able to, you know, really get on top of some of these intractable problems that in, everyone in the science community said was decades away from understanding. Yeah how stem cells work, how the immune systems work, brain development, climate, global carbon cycle, ecosystems, uh, without a quantum computer. Okay, it was a fairly fancy computer with some fairly fancy computational techniques, which are the kinds of computers, computing, and computational techniques that we're we're building upon and extending now in this investment firm. But it doesn't... You know the the idea that we're going to we can't solve them without a step changing in computing is is no we don't need it huh. we just need big computers. <laughs> so but, so but the speed and you know the speed and the size of the computer is not important. What's important? Well, I say it's not important. What I mean is it's not the determining not the factor. Not the be all and end all. Yeah, yeah. What's critical is a new way of thinking about how to approach these problems, whether it's market asset prices or whether it's in our case understanding these big global global problems and and figuring out radically new ways in which we might solve them as well as combining that with with investment in order to actually one power the other so where are you today and what do you need to launch your investment firm well the firm itself is launched so you know that the firm is up and running 
the thing that we need to do now is build out the team of scientists to help to reach critical mass on the on the scientific aspect which will also uh, power the scientific approach to investing and we're about to go out and start raising our first fund which looks promising and uh, I asked you a question uh, when I saw you speak we think back in February or March and my question was what's the minimum investment <laughs> so you've had a little bit more time to think about that one do you know how you'll engage with the market for people to invest in that first fund? And are you going to institutions only or will there be an opportunity for lower level investors to get involved? Well, investment in the firm is not going to be through pension funds. It's, you know, it's, it's going to be a, a combination of forward thinking entrepreneurs, investors, and, and they're the people that have currently being are engaged in this investment in the fund will be institutional investors and will be institutional investors that are interested in serving the interests of their asset owners in terms of impact investing but direct impact investing rather than simply as as i mentioned not investing in uh, in an impact fund that has no impact or it's failing to have impact but but also is people seeking better returns by the sounds of it i mean everything you've said if this I appreciate you're not there yet with, with a fully up and running fund trading with a year's history to show us and talk about. But it sounds like the theory here is that your fund will not only afford these people the opportunity to truly make a meaningful difference through proper impact investing, but also to beat the market and to beat some of the other available opportunities with you know quant-based funds and so on. I mean, I appreciate it's a bit of a leap, but that's the dream, right? And so, so actually you might attract investment from people who really don't care about the impact side as well theoretically which is isn't a bad thing because you'll still be able to benefit from that investment and and deploy that capital for good no that's it i mean you know one half of this venture is entirely to do that which is to generate a step change in returns for investors and by doing that being able to attract sufficient investment funds to generate for argument so let's say a billion pounds in uh, funds to do this radically new kinds of science to help uh, think about radically new ways to solve some of these problems. The you know, I'm, t- I'm talking about global problems. I mean, I realise this is a first world problem, but it, it's not. Withstanding that is still a problem, which is uh, how to serve the needs of you know millions of teachers, fire you know retired teachers, nurses, firefighters, civil servants, you know you name it, who are not getting a great return from their pension. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if the, you, you are talking about, you know, between four, if you're lucky, four and eight percent. Now, there are some hedge funds who do much better than that. There are some hedge funds who do a lot worse than that. And, um, you know, and in the last 10 years, I just want to put that into context, the last 10 years have been very unusual in which there's been this enormous bull market and many hedge funds just work on quant hedge funds that work on the basis of algorithms that, that are driven by momentum yeah. which is a fancy way of saying trend following moving averages of course so when you're in a strong trend it's easy to right perform. and so when and, and when that ends and as it surely will if it's not already about to then things will you know whether, whether quant hedge funds can continue to generate the sorts of returns that they've done over the last t- 10 years is an interesting question you know, the question for me is, you know, quant funds have done much better 
over the last 10 years than discretionary funds. But the question is, why, why are they both so poor? You know, I mean, you know, with, with a few exceptions. Interesting. I mean, you, you know, you've got, I mean, God only knows what Renaissance Technologies does because no one really knows. I mean, they're a quant fund and it's now a closed fund. Uh, and, you know, some other famous ones like Two Sigma, who have generated some quite spectacular returns. But on the whole, you know, the, the alternative asset management industry and hedge funds have not done particularly well. And, uh, you know, you have to ask, ask the question why. And I think scientific approaches have a potential to be to generate much better returns. I mean, to put this into context, in the area of science that we were working in, whether it's climate or ecosystems or, or you know any area that we were working in, we, in areas that everyone said was decades away from generating predictive understanding of these systems, we were able to generate, you know, between a 70 and 90% predictive ability uh, of these incredibly complex systems. Just, now, sorry, you, just, just to replay that, in areas that others were saying were impossible we're, we're to model. We're decades away, right. Or decades away, yes. you were able to reach 90% accuracy. 70 to 90% accuracy. Wow. And I think there was a visualization. And I don't just mean predictive ability. I mean prediction. Yeah. I mean in predictive understanding. So it was, sub, you know, the predictions were subsequently borne out. Even, even in areas where some of, you know, some of our colleagues were saying, well, I know that that's not true because that's not how it works. Yeah. Then you do the experiments. It turns out you were the predictions right. were right. Wow. So you weren't just backtesting, so it actually played out. Oh, no, out. no. Yeah, I, yeah. Everyone knows the back, you know, you don't do backtesting in science. Backtesting in investment is the devil's work um, because you can backtest anything. You, you form just fit, fit a model, model to data. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you overfit and you get, you know, uh, you know 71,000% return on anything that's to do with cats or something. <laughs> um, the internet has had its, had its, done its job yes. in the cat market, clearly. Um, but, you know, this is nothing to do with bat testing. But, you know, these are, these are some of the most complex systems on Earth that we've been able to generate, unprecedented, and as many, in, many of our colleagues said, was, was impossible, predictive accuracy. If we could get anything like that in terms of our ability to predict asset prices, it would be transformational. Yeah. Now I'm not claiming that we, we we can you know get that level of predictive accuracy. What I'm what I am claiming is that this novel scientific approach mm. beyond quant approach has a very real potential to be to be transformative. So you've had an awesome career. It sounds like you've worked on some fantastic things, and I'm sure you had lots of options for other things that you could work on. Why have you decided to do this? Well. That's a, that's a really good question. And, the, you know, the, the honest answer, even though it sounds a bit sort of, I'd like to teach the world to sing sort of Coke advert, is I do genuinely believe that there is a real need to create a powerful engine for positive change. Science is meant to be an engine for positive change. But the problem with science is that, you know, it, it, in academia, it's, it's very siloed. It's driven by, I would say, the wrong metrics. In business, it's very short-term. And, you know, having this freedom to do this uh, very radical approach to science, which is powered by a radical approach to investing that funds that, is actually really kind of, I think, really quite liberating and exciting. 
in order to actually try and create a very powerful engine for positive change. And that is what the firm is all about, is to create an engine, for, powerful engine for positive change. And whether we're successful, I don't know, but that's what we're trying to do. And what does success in five years' time look like? Well, five years' time might be a bit early. Ten years' time, you know, I would like to think that we will have created a critical mass of scientific and technological breakthroughs that really can make a difference to some of the problems that we are facing, whether it's in energy or whether it's in agriculture. We've talked about energy and climate change and electric cars and whatnot. You know, agriculture is an even bigger problem. I mean, you know, how... Food. How are we going to how feed, going to feed everybody? Yeah. nine to 10 billion, or it's probably going to be 12 billion. I wrote this book called 10 Billion a few years ago. And for reasons I don't understand, all manner of clowns claimed, well, hasn't this chap actually heard of the Green Revolution? You know, it's fed, it's enabled, you know, the Green Revolution has been this, even though I actually covered the Green Revolution. Uh and I set out why the Green Revolution, which started in the 1950s and has fed 7 billion of us, is almost certainly impossible to continue. So that didn't stop all manner of fruitcakes sort of coming out of the... Haters, as they're known yes. these days. Uh, Criticising the, 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 the book. Uh, the issue is that there is every reason to believe that the Green Revolution is not going to continue. And, you know, if you look at... Uh, uh, a whole, ma- a whole range of things to do with groundwater depletion, soil degradation, climate change, uh, land use change. Yeah, the, the, the probability of us being able to feed 9 billion of us on the current system is unthinkable. And, uh, and, and that's before we even get to the problem of the amount of carbon dioxide and methane and nitrous dioxide that... that, uh, that agriculture creates so therefore you know what do you do i mean for example there are a whole range of fungal pathogen novel fungal pathogens that look as though they might be on the horizon uh, that could finish off you know many of the world's crops in 20 years and given the fact that one of the things about the green revolution is that we had to breed just about all genetic diversity out of crops in order to produce crops that will feed 7 billion people well if you haven't got a lot of genetic diversity, when something comes along that's going to finish everything off, it's going to finish yeah. most things off. Game over, yeah. And, and uh, quickly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, whether that's wheat or soya, you know, whatever it is, yeah, and we might be, it might never happen, but it might be 10 years away. You know, there, there's a whole range of weapons to deal with that at the minute, you know, whether it's triosols or something. But, you know, there were something like 15 to 20 classes of triosols to solve that problem 20 years ago. And there's now, you know, two or three that are only effective. When those two or three have gone, you know, you speak to anybody at BASF or Syngenta or Monsanto, whatever it's called now, or DuPont or something, you know, they're really struggling to find out. Sally Davis, the chief medical officer, always, you know, talks about this microbial resistance and antibiotic resistance. Similar, right. similar well, problem. Right. Well, exactly. It's exactly the same, same, same problem. And so, so in ten years' time sort of to solve those problems. So, yeah, to solve so, the big so problems. So, if you could, if you, for, if you could, if for example, you could program plants. Yeah. You could do. You know, if you could program the cellular machinery of plants 
in a way in which you could program ad- the photosynthetic machinery to bio, do artificial bio, bioengineering. I guess you would call that. Well, I suppose you would call it. I suppose you would call it biological computation, or right. pro- or just you know, it's it's a it's a world away from the current. I see. Uh, approach to bioengineering. Sure. So like a step change to what's being yes. done now. Okay, and so success for the for the fund ten years from now would be to have achieved the goal of raising all this money and and delivering these returns to allow you to fund and work on in because that's the beauty of this for me is that it's sort of the same research and, exactly and it's I, exactly the same like, science it's 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 that that's the most incredible thing about the concept and I've I've always believed that whether you like it or not we live in this capitalist world and. The way to solve problems is to figure out ways to enable the capitalist answer to be the answer that solves the problem. So if you do the thing that happens to also be the most profitable thing and gets you the outcome you want, then it's going to be very easy to to achieve it. And I think you've cracked that here, which I find incredibly exciting personally. So good luck, I guess is all I can say. And I really hope in 10 years you've smashed it because it sounds like you've got a really interesting direction in mind. That I've, I mean, I've never heard of anything like this anywhere else. Is there anyone else doing this in the world that you're aware of? Um, not that I'm aware of, no. Again, you know, it's, it's a world away from today's impact investing. Yeah. And it's a world away from today's approach to even doing science. So I think it's a genuinely revolutionary and potentially transformative approach to a investing and doing science and looking at new approaches radically new approaches to both understanding and solving our greatest global challenges thank you so much i think we'll probably end it there but that's been a fascinating conversation rambling um, no not rambling at all it's been (laughs) incredible look the as we as we've said this this podcast is all about how technology is changing our lives and i think it's really interesting to get into the interplay between science and technology because clearly they're very close bedfellows but i think the way you described it was fascinating and you know we're off, we're often talking to people who are very much in the trenches of the technology side so actually to come out away from that a bit and talk in a more macro kind of way about the planet and the challenges and and the scientific thinking that's going to enable that next wave of technology because that's what will happen as as we've discussed today is amazing really sensational so it's been an honor and a pleasure talking to you and thank you so much for coming on any final thoughts anything you'd like to close with Uh, uh, no i'd just like to thank you both for even remotely thinking that i might be an interesting chap to chat to that's been great no doubt about that thanks a lot (laughs) thank you